Hi, and welcome back to the Tattoo Tales podcast. This is Steph Bastian, and today we sit down with Shotzi Gorman. For those of you that don't know him, Shotzi has been tattooing for over four decades, and he's one of those old timers that, you know, they don't make them like this anymore. These type of people are natural born storytellers, people that have an incredibly contagious energy. You can't help but being mesmerized by his words. So I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to sit down with him and to ask him a few questions because first of all, he's a great entertainer. So this is perfectly in the spirits of the show, which is to recollect those stories. Um, beyond that, he really embodies the aim that I try to keep in mind every time I sit down with one of these guests, which is not only to entertain, but to educate and inspire. What does that mean? It means that tattooing changed and every day we lose, especially in the younger generation perhaps, more and more the connection with where this craft comes from, art, whatever you want to call it. I believe that it's very important to learn and to keep in mind the history of tattooing because first of all, you develop a bit more of an appreciated uh, attitude so that you don't grow a big head very quickly because it's very easy in this profession to do that and uh, you are more aware of what you have and who you are as an artist as a tattooer you know where things come from you know who invented what and uh, you are just a better professional uh, on the other hand i like the word inspire because i try to get not only the stories out of our guests but their life experience because when you work when you have a life they make you cross path with thousands of people from all walks of life then you know as they used to say tattooer has to be an artist a technician a psychologist so once you work for many years with people like this and you travel the world and you're exposed to many different realities you start changing your priorities and it's not more anymore about you know the conventions the travels the prices the party it becomes about the people and the guests that i had that had a long experience 30 40 50 years of tattooing or more they all have that in common they all have a different outlook in life and they put people first so this is very important because it gives you perspective on what it means to be a tattooer the responsibility that we have towards our customers um, the potential for healing that this craft has which is not just pretty pictures and in general it helps you become a better human being i think if you take it that way so Shotzi really embodies perfectly the spirit of the tattooers that i choose to sit down on the chair with which is to entertain educate and inspire not to mention that he crossed paths with some of the most significant tattooers in history <laughs> cliff raven Huck Spaulding, Doc Webb, Spiderweb, especially to the younger audience. If you don't know these names, please do your homeworks and have a look because it's very interesting to learn about these people. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to support the show, it would mean the world to me if you could take like a few seconds to go on Spotify and iTunes, give a nice rating. That really helps the show get out there and uh, reach more people. So perhaps inspire more people. Thank you and enjoy the episode. How are you? 
All right, pretty good, thank you. It's been uh, raining really hard for a few days out here. Yeah, where are you at exactly? Sonoma, California, uh, 45 minutes north of San Francisco. But everything, everything is okay, yeah? Even if it's not like floods or something. No, thank God for the rain because we had 11 months with no rain. Oh, wow. And we were on a serious fire watch all the time. 2017, we had huge fires. I got emergency evacuated from my home. And every year now, there's been fires very close to us. Wow. I just wanted to say thank you for making the time. You know, it's always an honor yeah. to have people like yourself, you know, donate their time. Shotzi, let me ask you, how long have you been tattooing? It's been 43 years. Wow. I started in uh, 1977. That was the year that Star Wars came out. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And let me ask you, can you remember the first time you ever seen a tattoo? Oh, uh, I would be hard because my family had tattoos. My father uh, was in the Navy and he had a cluster of tattoos. My grandfather, uh, my mother's father, uh, my, my maternal grandfather, he's from Naples. Italy. And he had, he had a tattoo. All yeah, right. so half, Naples. Of my family, half my family is Italian. The other half is Irish. All right. Have you ever been to Italy? Oh, yeah, many times. Okay. Sure. I worked at the Bologna shows, uh, Marco Leone's show, probably yeah, every yeah, year yeah. for, uh, I don't know, six years. Yeah, that was a good one, huh? Oh, it was fun, yeah. And I spent time with Luca Bernacchia at uh, Body Decorators. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Became, we became very good friends, and I spent time with him. I'd come into the show uh, and then take off and travel around Italy uh, after the show and do Christmas shopping because it was <laughs> late November, uh, yeah, for those shows. Nice. You still have family there in Naples? <clears throat> you know, my... Uh, my grandfather had family there, but the last time I went, well, it's been a good long time now, I was never able to track them down. Uh, he had a brother who had a glass shop. He sold Murano glass in uh, Venice. So it's a little complicated because my grandfather, <laughs> my grandfather was a bigamist. So, right. yeah, yeah. And I... I grew up knowing him as uh, Joseph Casparino, yeah, but his real name was James Di Nicoloro. Okay. So when he came over from Italy, he had a family, and then he married my grandmother and had a second family with a different name. <laughs> wow. So I guess yeah, that makes it difficult to like track down the the you know backward. Yeah, I have. Uh, I tried many times to try to find his information because I know the first time he came through Ellis Island. Uh, but the second time he took off, he went back to Italy because he got jammed up uh, after beating up a cop. Wow. <laughs> oh, and, uh, he, he went back to Italy. He came into Canada and then uh, crossed over into Massachusetts. And that's where my mother's family all were born and grew up. Oh, wow. You got the adventure in the blood, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you get close to tattooing, like, when you, when you first started? <clears throat> you know, it's pretty interesting because I never considered tattooing 
um, for myself. I was my, my entire life. I've been making art. So I've always wanted to make art. I wanted to, you know, to make things and create things. And um, so I missed an opportunity to go to university and uh, I ended up in the army, blah, blah, blah. And I left there. When I came back home, I moved to New York City. And uh, I knew I knew no one. <laughs> I had two thousand dollars in my pocket. That was it. And uh, I got myself this little basement apartment, you know, in the living under the ground like a like a mole. Yeah. yeah, look, yeah, out, yeah. look out the window and just see ankles going by, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, my dad had one of those. Yeah. And so. Uh, the way things worked in New York City in the early 70s when I moved there was that if you were a painter, you found work as a, an electrician. If you were an actor, singer, dancer, you worked as a bartender, waiter, or waitress. If you were a sculptor, which was what I was doing at the time, you ended up doing carpentry, sheetrock, uh, you know, building walls. And so I started hanging around at this art bar, uh, and uh, <clears throat> I've always been a pool player, so I didn't really get to meet too many people. So I started kicking some ass on the pool table and uh, <laughs> finally got to uh, meet some other artists. And I asked, OK, well, how am I going to survive here? What, where can I find work? I was looking actually to work in a studio with another sculptor. That's what I was trying to do. Somehow I went to New York in the 1970s thinking I was going to find, I don't know, the Renaissance or something. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? Oh God, I was in my early twenties. I was okay. 20. Yeah. 20 okay. years old. And, um, well, I had gotten thrown out of the army. Uh, it was during the Vietnam war. So I got, I got drafted. I was one of the early, uh, they call it a lottery draft. You know, they give you a number. And I sat down with all my friends were in my friend's house and, we're all smoking weed and we opened up our envelopes at the same time. And we're like, okay, my friend had 40,000. The other friend had 60,000. And I opened mine up and it said three. Oh. <laughs> I was like, there's numbers missing from mine. <laughs> wow. like, oh, you're in the army, dude. And I was the next day I got my notice getting to the army. But um, my friends helped me out by putting some blotter acid on the letters that they were sending me. Okay. And so that's how I managed to get out of the army. <laughs> <laughs> that's dope. <laughs> that's amazing. And then you were, so you met these people playing pool? Yeah. And I, so I meet these artists and so I asked them, how do I find work? And they said, well, what do you do? And I said, I make sculpture. And they were like, okay, uh, you do, you're going to do carpentry work. So go out in Soho, which is South. Have you been to New York? Do you know New York at all? Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, well, New York has this one street on the east side. It's called, it's actually Houston Street. But of course, New Yorkers refuse to use the word Houston. So they say Houston Street. And everything, everything south of that is called Soho, south of Houston. And that was the core in the 70s of the art scene. So it was a bohemian place. There were lots of artists living there. There were galleries, very famous galleries. And so I... I was told, go look for a dumpster, you know, big garbage. Uh, they had these huge, you know, 
uh, garbage disposal things. So when there's jobs going on, usually they're in these old buildings, which were factories. So to cut it short, they, they would have to rip everything out before they could actually start doing any kind of renovation. A lot of it was renovated into living spaces. So there'd be loft style, so-called loft style living spaces. So I went walking around and I see this in a dumpster and uh, I see these two guys getting off the freight elevator. And I asked, I said to them, hey, uh, oh, that job's on the fifth floor, right? And they're like, no, no, the job's on the third floor. Oh, okay. What's that guy's name again? And they're like, oh, Mike, Mike Bacchetti. So I mean, I didn't know anybody, right? So the doors to the elevator closed. I missed the elevator. So I start yelling up, Mike, Mike Bacchetti. And he sticks his head out of the window, yeah? <laughs> really long ponytail. And he's looking at me like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, hey, send the elevator down. So he sends the elevator. I get up. The doors open up and he's standing there like this. Yeah. Do I know you? I'm like, no, you don't know me. And I stick my hand out. You know, I'm Shotzi Gorman. I just got into town. I need work. And I saw the dumpster. And he goes, well, how the hell did you get my name? I said, well, I got it off to two guys getting off the elevator. <laughs> he started laughing and he goes, well, can you read a plan? And I'm like, yeah, I used to build houses when I was a kid in high school during the summers. I worked as a laborer, you know, building houses. But I had knowledge. I had experience and tools. I had my own tools. So uh, he said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a sculptor. He goes, well, I'm looking at this job and I see that I can't do it myself. Show up here on Monday. And he's laughing the whole time. Like this guy, this kid crazy, right? He said, if you show up here on Monday, seven in the morning and you got your tools and you can do what you say you can do, I'll hire you. And so that's how I became friends with Mike Piketty. And then Mike decided he was working at LaGuardia Community College. He owned a tattoo shop called Fine Line. It was the first, it was, he worked before the bands were gone. So he worked illegally uh, in the seventies and his son, Mihai Piketty took over the shop. Unfortunately, that shop just closed after 26 years, but it was considered the oldest shop in Manhattan since it opened, you know, pre-ban. Um, so, you know, Man Manhattan banned tattooing in the early 60s. All five boroughs of New York City were no tattooing allowed. So anyway, Mike had these tattoos and he wanted to get them covered. And he started traveling around to tattoo shops. And we were working together and his family kind of adopted me. They were kind of like my adopted family in New York. Yeah. And they worried about me because I lived in this hole in the ground in the Lower East Side <clears throat> where the only other Caucasians were there to buy heroin, you know. So and it was a mostly Puerto Rican community. It was exciting. It was fun for me. You know, I. Wonderful. Yeah, it was fun. It was great. I love the people. And it was just in the 70s, New York was a very dangerous place. There was a high level of unemployment. There was garbage everywhere. I mean, there were a lot of random, there's a lot of random violence. It was 70s where it was a rough time to be in New York City. At any rate, Mike decided to get tattooed and I went started traveling with him to these tattoo shops and I met Spider Webb and Big Joe Kaplan and a few other tattoo artists. <clears throat> and then Mike started to get tattooed um, and he decided that he wanted to do tattooing. So he started digging up information where to get the supplies. It was, it was a secret world then. Yeah. 
Like you mm-hmm. had to really know somebody to get a tattoo machine. <laughs> you had to be on the inside. And uh, we finally managed to get some information and uh, he bought a couple of tattoo machines and some pigments. And uh, we talked about, and Mike was a really talented, super talented and quite successful sculptor and a good draftsman. So I decided, all right, I want him to tattoo me. And uh, he did my, my first tattoo. And then he did this huge uh, Japanese uh, sleeve and across wow. my chest panel and so on. And uh, he decided he wanted to go into business. And I said, well, I want to go in there with you. And I, I, I was pretty broke, man, you know, and uh, I took whatever money I had scrounged together and I bought myself a couple of tattoo machines. I bought a dry heat sterilizer because I didn't know anything about autoclaves at the time. And we were supposed to open business together. And that kind of failed because his wife uh, had decided she didn't want him to go in the tattoo trade. She didn't like, she wanted to, uh, she really enjoyed the cachet of having a fine artist as a husband, not some low life tattoo guy, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Different status, I guess. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and then we didn't do the shop. And I said to Mike, what am I supposed to do? I put all this money into buying all this shit. Yeah. Uh, I said, I'm going to start tattooing out of my house. And I did. I had a loft on 26th Street, 7th Avenue in New York City. And I started tattooing there and uh, put ads in the back of the village voice and I was working illegally. So I was constantly worried about getting arrested because you could be arrested for doing a tattoo in New York. First offense was a $500 fine. Second offense, you could do a year in the County jail. If you got caught tattooing, that was, that was a problem. (laughs) A different different world. huh? Yeah, it was a different world for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I ended up busy and I was doing a lot of tattooing and I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground about what I was doing. <laughs> you know, Mike was a beginner. He tattooed me. And, you know, when I first started, uh, I thought, oh, I need an apprenticeship. So I started going around trying to find work. And I had gotten this, um, you know, in the United States, the only kind of magazines that covered tattooing in any way in those days were either men's like nude magazines or biker magazines. So there was a a nude magazine called Gent, you know, mostly just naked breasts. They didn't show any genitalia or anything. But there was an article about Cliff Raven, who was an American tattoo artist, uh, was working in Chicago at the time. And he was doing these beautiful Japanese style tattoos. And he was really good draftsman. And there were all these naked women that were painted none of them were tattooed kind of draped all over him you know and stuff and I saw this article but I saw pictures of his actual tattoos in the article <clears throat> and he had bought Lyle Tuttle had opened up a tattoo shop on Sunset Strip in LA so uh, Cliff Raven bought that shop and he moved into LA and so Cliff had apprenticed Dennis Dwyer and uh, Robert Benedetti. And, you know, these were the people that were working that came out of his shop. So I called him up and I said, I made an appointment to go see him to get tattooed. And I uh, took some money that I had earned tattooing and I flew out to uh, California. 
And when I, when I got there, I, I saw a shop. It was absolutely beautiful, immaculate. I, I've never seen, you know, to this day, there are a few shops that could match up to the quality of his shop. I, I you know, I started getting tattooed by him. And, he, you know, he said, oh, by the way, he had quart bottles of black from uh, one to one down to 10 to one. So he had developed these gray wash blacks on his own. And they were in quart bottles and they were marked. And he said, ask me any questions you want. So I started asking about what, what, why were these, what were these pigments that he had and so on. He answered my questions very generously while he was tattooing me. And then I said, look, I need an apprenticeship. I love your work. I think you're a master and I'll move out to California tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I'll clean your car. I'll wash your, door, your house. <laughs> I'll do whatever I got to do, but I, I need an apprenticeship. Yeah. And he said, you, I'm packed with people. He said, and you wouldn't be comfortable here anyway. You know, he said, so where are you living? And I told him I'm living in Manhattan. He picked up the phone. He called Spider Webb, who was in Yonkers at the time, tattooing just outside of the five boroughs. And he said, I got this kid in the chair here. Uh, he does really good artwork. You're going to give him a job. And Spider said, okay, well, tell him to come and see me. And that's how I got my first job. Wow. So I mean, that, how did, do you remember how that felt? I was shocked, you know, and I was grateful because I didn't have to move. But I did know that Spider, Spider Web had a really, you know, mixed reputation for being pretty insane. And so I had to go there and get this uh, interview with the, uh, with spider so spider comes out and he's wearing this velvet coat with a you know 19th century ruffled collar and he's got these wraparound sunglasses on yeah and uh ah. you know he sits down in this chair which was this big overstuffed red chair with all the stuffing coming out of it yeah and he's uh <clears throat> he starts talking about this conceptual artist whose name was chris burden i don't know if you know him but uh, he was a conceptual, conceptual artist in the early 70s, and he had himself crucified to a Volkswagen. They knocked nails into his arms and crucified him to the roof of a, of a VW. Then he had like himself, physically? Like he yeah. got physically crucified? Yeah. And then wow. he had himself shot with a gun. And then he, you know, his next artwork was he put these... Uh, high tension wires, you know, with thousands of volts in this room. And it was so low that he couldn't sit up or anything, he had to stay laying down. And if he sat up, he would have got electrocuted. That was another one of his things. Wow. So Spider Webb is telling me, this guy's a genius, you know, creative genius, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, come on, Spider, this guy's an asshole with a death wish, you know? <laughs> that's not art, dude. That is like, that's a, uh, that's like attempted suicide over and over and over. Like, that's nothing to do at all with artwork. And we're arguing. We argued. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, I'm screwed. You know, I'm not going to get blew this. It. Yeah. You blew so it. he's in Jack Daniels is smoking a joint the size of my thumb, you know. And uh, he kind of starts laying back in the chair, kind of nodding out a little bit. And I just got up and left. <laughs> I went home. The next day I got a call. Okay, you're hired, kid. Come on in. See me tomorrow. Get the keys. And 
and I got the job. I was like, how the fuck did that happen? You know? <laughs> so I get there, he hands me the keys and there was this other girl working there, Ellen. Uh, he had to give everybody a name. So her name was Original Sin. Okay. Go figure. And uh, <clears throat> so, because his real name was Joseph Patrick O'Sullivan. I don't know how many people know that, but Spider Webb was actually Joseph Patrick O'Sullivan, a fallen Irish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, I have to go because I'm building a house in uh, Woodstock, New York. So you're going to open up, you're going to work, you're going to give all the money to Ellen. At the end of the week, she's going to cut you your percentage. Okay. So I'm working. And I'm thinking, I said, you know, I'm supposed to be getting an apprenticeship, right? You're going to teach me. Uh, and I'm starting to work and I got pigment shooting out of the top of the tube and <laughs> I can't get things going right. So I call Huck Spaulding on the phone. Huck was, he was a terrific guy. You know what I mean? He was, he is just generous and helpful. And he had Spaulding and Rogers tattoo supply and him and Paul Rogers were partners at one point. And then Paul, got away from that so at any rate i said help you know there's pigments shooting out of the top of the tube i don't know what the hell to do you know he said ah kid you got the fucking needle bar in backwards <laughs> oh wow <laughs> that was it so i turned it around oh that needle bar sure enough and he gave me information and uh and so i'm working and spider came in one day and i said spider i I need to help, you know, I, my machines are running like crap. I don't know how to adjust them. You got to show me some stuff. And he took a little uh, cap, a pigment cap, and he put white in it and he put a little yellow and he stirred it up with a toothpick and he showed me and he said, this is the greatest color you're ever going to find. And then he threw it in the garbage and he left. <laughs> I think he was tripping or something. I swear. I That's think very was cryptic. Yes. I think he was on acid, you know, I swear. But anyway, I'm working. I ended up working with, you know, for a few months. Now he's coming back. He's going to work in the shop. And so in the beginning, you know, I'm sitting at Spiderweb's tattoo shop. So everybody's coming through the door saying, uh, I want to get a tattoo from Spiderweb. And I'm like, well, he's out of town. You know, he's not going to be around. I don't know when he's coming back. And they would leave. And I'd be sitting there like, so finally, you know, a couple of guys came in and they said, we want to get a tattoo from Spiderweb. And I went, I'm Spiderweb, sit down, you know, and I started tattooing. And so everybody that came through the door, yeah, I'm Spiderweb, have a seat. So I just started earning a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> Spider comes back and uh, we're sitting there together on the couch and we're talking and a couple of guys came in and. This guy said, well, I want to get a tattoo from Spiderweb. So Spider stands up and he goes, yeah, how are you doing? I'm Spiderweb. The kid points at me and said, no, I want that Spiderweb to tattoo me. <laughs> he tattooed my how did friend. He how did he take it? He fired me. <laughs> <laughs> he fired my ass and threw me out. That was how he took it. <laughs> God. Oh, that's my beginnings. And then I went around trying to find a tattoo shop to work in. And uh, I started going back to Jersey, taking the train over and figuring, well, maybe I get a job in Jersey. <clears throat> and the first place I went to, 
I go into the tattoo shop and I introduce myself and the guy's working on somebody and he's working. And all of a sudden he goes, he goes like this into it and he falls off the chair onto the floor. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? I ask his customer, what's going on? I ah, don't worry about it. He does this all the time. He's just in a nod. He's, he's a junkie. <laughs> the guy was a junkie. His customer got up, went outside, had a cigarette, you know, and I'm like, hey, dude, you wake up. Are you okay? He's like, oh, what's going on? You know, and I'm like, your customer's outside. So obviously I didn't get that job. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Another shop I went into, the guy pulled open his jacket and he had a 38 revolver and a you know holster. I find out you're tattooing around here, kid. I'll blow your fucking brains out. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Next. Yeah, that was uh, that was my experience trying to get another oh. job. Oh, so God. fuck it, I just stayed back in New York and worked illegally out of my shop, you know, until I decided to open up a shop in uh, in New Jersey. Yeah. And you know, and then I traveled around. Of course, I went to the first national tattoo convention, and uh, there I met all kinds of people. And uh, I started wanting to meet more of the old timers, so I did. I went around the United States visiting the last of that of Wild Tuttle's generation. Yeah, um, you know, Doc Webb and, and uh, San Diego, and you know, all these some California guys and a lot of guys in the Midwest and along the East coast. <clears throat> and, uh, the tattoo convention really woke me up. It did. And then uh, second tattoo convention, I became friends with Peter Poulos, American tattoo artist, um, who had a chain of tattoo shops by that time. He had, he was from long Island, but he was living in uh, Arizona at the time. And, you know, uh, he had kind of a, uh, a strange reputation too. You know, he had everybody convinced that he was a, a Satan worshiper, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but that guy was talented. Man. He did this back piece on this girl with a seven flat needle shader, no outline of uh, these horses in waves, you know, like the, there's a famous painting, 19th century painting. It's horses coming through the front end of a wave. He did this beautiful back piece. And he was always photographed with a bevy of uh, girls around him, half-naked girls with tattoos. And so he was, he was the one who pushed Philadelphia Eddie uh, into putting together a tattoo convention because Eddie just wanted to do the supply business, but it was really Peter Poulos uh, that uh, pushed him into doing that. Anyway, Peter asks me to tattoo him. And so I was like, you want me to tattoo you? He goes, yeah, I like the, what you're doing. This is really, you know, this and that. Because I had won a couple of awards uh, for some tattoos that I did. And he said, but I'm in college, you know, I'm in Arizona. He goes, so I'm going to fly you out. I have somebody pick you up and then we'll bring you to my place and you can tattoo me there. And he wanted a tattoo of um, this woman with a penis in her hand about to give head to the penis but the top of the penis was going to be a demon and he wanted it tattooed on his ass <laughs> so i was like what <laughs> so he's uh okay uh, you know i don't know I, I i got the chance to do this i'm gonna do it so he flies me out there to arizona he has this guy pick me up with a car 
And that guy would look like Luca Brockett, you know, from the Godfather movie, movie mm-hmm. the hitman mm-hmm. for uh, the Don. Yeah. Peter told me to pick you up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I got in the back of the car, you know, the guy didn't talk to me. He just drove for hours. We got in the middle of nowhere and we see this, uh, this compound and Peter was uh, breeding dogs and wolves together. So making wolf dogs and they were gigantic. Yeah, okay. it was breeding wolves and dogs. Oh, wow. And the dogs were gigantic, yeah, with teeth the size of your head. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I get there. I get out of the car. The guy says, that's where you're going. Okay, I go inside. There's like a dozen guys sitting around. <clears throat> Peter's not there. They all got their guns out. I got this fucking gun, and it's got this kind of thing, and I got this silencer, you know. And And I'm like, holy shit, what did I get myself into? You know, it's like. And I'm sitting there, and they tell Luca Brazzi to go get some beer because Peter's coming, right? So he runs off, and I'm just sitting there just being quiet, watching this whole thing, right? And uh, <clears throat> the big guy comes back in with a case of beer, and one of the guys says, hey, that's not the kind of beer Peter likes. And that guy got pale, like all the color drained out of his face, and he ran back out to the car, Oh no, he goes, oh no, and he goes back to the, and I'm oh, like, God. Oh, man, what is happening here? You know? So Peter comes in finally, hugs me, and <clears throat> he was very muscular, well-built guy, you know, handsome. And he said, uh, so you know, I'm glad you're here. And I like, Peter, I don't know what you're doing, man, but all these guns and stuff really make me nervous. I'm not comfortable, you know, not comfortable around these guns. So he turns around, he goes like this, he waves his hand, he goes, hey. <laughs> Nobody take out any guns while Shotzi's here. Whoop, all the guns disappear. I'm like, holy shit. That's you know? gangster as fuck. Yeah, what the fuck is happening here, you know? Okay, so I get to meet his wife, and his boy was really young at the time. I show him my drawing. He's happy about it. And, you know, we go off on this adventure, and he, he said, I got to go talk to these guys about my motorcycle. So we go to this you know, they're hour drive out into the desert and there's a big metal Quonset hut, like a military hut, yeah? We walk in, there's all these guys working on bikes and Peter goes up to the guy at the desk and he takes a gun out and he sticks it in the guy's face, right? And he says, where's my fucking motorcycle, you asshole? You told me you would have the fucking thing done. Now everybody in the place has a gun. Well, they all come out with shotguns and this and and I'm standing there, I swear, I thought I was going to shit right in my pants. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to die here. I don't even know what's happening. What's happening? And then he puts the gun down, and everybody starts laughing. Oh, <laughs> it was a fucking joke. The joke was on me, right? And I swear, I had, to check my, I had to check my pants after that. <laughs> so it turns out that this is the Dirty Dozen, who are... Hell's Angels, who have been expelled from the Hell's Angels because they're too crazy. <laughs> Jesus be, Christ. And they're fixing his motorcycle. So this is he thinks this is funny. He broke my balls. You know, he got me. And we go out to a, a diner and it's Arizona. It's hot. And he's got a like a full-length jacket on. And I'm like sweating and I'm in a sh- pair of shorts and a short sleeve shirt. And I said, 
he said, you, you don't mind showing your tattoos? I'm like, no, what the hell? I got tattoos. I'm going to show them. He goes, oh, I don't like people to see my tattoos. And then uh, he said, we got to make one more stop. I'm going to go buy a coffin. And I'm like, oh, a coffin? Jesus. Yeah. He goes, yeah, I want to buy a coffin for myself. He goes, I want to be the one to pick it out. Really nice one, you know? So we go to this place and he's looking at these coffins with all angels and, you know, you you want something with devils on it, right? Demons, devils. So he said, I'll just add my own stuff onto it. And I said, God, you're like 35 years old. What the hell are you doing looking at coffins? Oh, you never know what's going to happen. Less than three months later, he was murdered. Oh, God. Less than three months. And uh, he used to do shit like call me on the phone after I tattooed him. And I'd get this woman on the phone with a crackly sound. She'd say, oh, I got a collect call from Ed Hardy from Japan. Will you please take it? And I was like, why the hell would Ed Hardy be calling me from Japan and collect? You know, he wanted me to pay for it. So (laughs) I was like, okay. And he get on the phone. He goes, "Fuck you, man! This ain't Ed Hardy, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> this is Peter Poulos. You're a pain in the ass." That's what he called me because I tattooed his ass, right? Oh God. So I'll tell you another story. I'm going to tattoo him. We are in this room, his booth, and there's all these guys sitting around. A bunch of them left. There's maybe three or four of them. And he's got to get naked because I'm going to tattoo his ass. So he takes his pants off and uh, he starts pulling on his penis, right? And he's walking around the room shaking it at these guys, right? Come on, I know you want to suck my cock. He's gone and he's shaking his dick at them, right? And I'm like, hey, what the fuck, man? Are we going to do this tattoo or what? And he comes over and he starts shaking it at me. So I grabbed it and I start pulling him around, you know? Like a toy. He's like, woo! And the guys are all, now these guys are all on their feet, like, what the hell's going on? You know? I said, you shake that thing at me again, I'll cut that motherfucker right off, you know? Because I used to use a straight razor when I tattooed. You crazy motherfucker. That's so funny. Like, you're crazier than him. (laughs) I guess that's why he liked you. Yep. So I got him on the fucking table finally and I tattooed him. And um, after that, he knew that I liked Navajo carpets. So he'd say, okay, I'm going to send you a box of carpets. Whatever you like, you keep. Whatever you don't want, you send back and you just pay me for what you keep, you know. But he would constantly have somebody call up and say it was somebody else, you know. Oh, it's this Cliff Raven. Will you uh, (laughs) accept the charges? I'm like, yeah, fuck you, Peter, you know. (laughs) Oh, God. What year was this, more or less? In the early 80s. Okay. 80, 81. Uh, yeah, because 82, I went to London Convention. Uh, not wasn't London Convention. It was Dunstable, right? Uh, you know, Al Hardy and uh, Ian of Reading and those guys put together a convention. And, uh, and then I went to a, a convention <clears throat> actually in London that was put together by the, all the old timers. It was at the, um, the, uh, this hotel, hold on, give me a second. I'm trying to remember the name of it. The Grosvenor Hotel. And uh, it was, uh, you know, maybe like 15 boots in the place. Yeah. And I brought a woman with me, Pat Sinatra. 
who was working with me at the time. And so all these old British tattoo artists were like, what the fuck is she doing here? You know, like I said, man, she could out tattoo your ass any day. <laughs> they didn't like the fact that there was going to be a woman tattooing. Yeah. So this is like in 82, right? In London, yeah? <clears throat> yeah, it was right in London, downtown London. And that's where uh, Doc Forrest, Uva Skog, and I became very good friends. And I ended up traveling and working at his place and going to Russia pre-Perestroika, but that's a whole other lifetime, you know? Oh, God. And so I guess you, I mean, you've been to a few places after, like, you, you started traveling, then you, you know, you yeah. make connections, and then one link to, sure. to another, right? Yeah, I worked in Germany, I worked in Italy, uh, you know, uh, France, and uh, eventually Russia, and uh, the first Russian tattoo convention in the 90s. And um, I did all the firsts, except for the first Japanese tattoo convention that was put together by somebody who politically didn't like me, so I wasn't okay. invited. Yeah, and uh, what would you say was, for some reason, you know, there are a million reasons, and, but what would you remember uh, dearly? You know, what was the thing that left you most of an impression of a place or people or shop or, you know, something that you're like, oh, yeah, did that one really? Well, I guess, you know, being an American, you know, we get stuck in this idea, oh, America is where it's at, yeah. But when I went to Europe, I realized that not only were the tattoo artists doing good work, but they were doing really unique work, different. They weren't, like in America, it seemed to me, there were, uh, tattoo artists were like dogs smelling each other's ass, yeah? If one guy did something, everybody did it, yeah? But in Europe, people were doing creative work and they were doing personal work, things that moved them, things that made them excited. And the Japanese influence, of course, I got to meet Nakano, uh, Horiyoshi. And uh, <clears throat> there was a show that was put on in the early 80s called The Ass and the Zebra. Do you know about that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was put together by Giorgio Orsini. And so the Italian government paid to bring us over. Yeah, I remember that. Hank, Hank was talking about that, I think. Yeah, Hank Schiffmeyer. Yeah. Actually, Hank wasn't in it, but he came. To the, yep. to the but I was invited um, to be a representative of New York and the East Coast. And so I got to work and we worked in the slave headquarters right up the street from the Coliseum. That's where we actually tattooed. And the ironic thing was, even though it was paid for by the government of Italy, tattooing was illegal then in Italy. And so the socialists, That's Italy in a nutshell. That's Italy yeah. in a nutshell, man. <laughs> so the socialists found out we were charging people to tattoo them. And they just came down and started protesting. And the cops came and they were going to arrest everybody for tattooing, you know. And uh, <laughs> all of us stored our tattoo equipment in this little shed with a lock on it. And somebody broke into it and stole a bunch of the tattoo equipment. So the cops come and they're like, eh, you know, we can't do anything. So they contacted the local family. <laughs> you know, And uh, two days later, everything was back, right back where it's supposed yep. to be. And uh, 
So everybody was angry that we were tattooing, but people were fascinated. And, uh, you know, I got to meet a lot of important people and uh, became good friends with uh, Horiyoshi. Uh, we had long talks and he tattooed me with a prayer uh, that's here on my forearm. Um, and it's a prayer that says uh, that there are two roads and there is a what you know a balance between fire and water, yin and yang kind of thing. And it all, if you follow the white path or the balanced path, you come to the Tao, which is the soul of the universe. So this was, because I talked to him about all these conceptual ideas <clears throat> of what I wanted as a tattoo. And so he hand tooled that on me. And uh, from then on, we kept in close contact. And uh, of course he would show up at the Italian shows at Marco Leone's and, and uh, it was really fun. At one point I took him out, I snuck him away from his, uh, his uh, crowd. Yeah, and Ed Hardy was very covetous of him. He was like, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I snuck him over to this Italian grappa bar <laughs> and uh, we started drinking grappa and trying every grappa on the shelf, yeah. And it, we're totally shit-faced drunk. <laughs> and I'm doing erotic napkin foldings, you know, making penises, bras, and he was just crying. We couldn't really communicate that well. He didn't speak much English at that time. So we just drew pictures for each other, you know, and talked and got really drunk. And I had to pretty much carry him back to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was angry, man. The interpreters, the family, uh, his guards, his bodyguards. <laughs> and Hardy was fucking fuming. And we were just fucking having fun, man. Laughing, drunk on our ass, you know. The fact that these people were, Europeans were unafraid to, I mean, who, you know, here we are in Italy and I'm walking around and I can't go three feet without seeing some magnificent piece of artwork, some sculpture, some, you know, and the, the uh, Piazza Narvona and the Trevi Fountain. And I mean, I, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a really poor family. I lived in a low income housing project. Yeah. My father couldn't keep a job. And all of a sudden I'm walking down the streets. Yeah of Rome. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was there. You know, my, my grandfather, you know, he would always say, ah, you know, those people in the North, the flies don't shit on them. You know, <laughs> that, was his, <laughs> that was his big saying. And so I, I loved Rome. I fell in love. I fell in love with Italy. I and mean, when I got off the plane the first time, <clears throat> I smelled Italy and I thought, oh, it's like going to my grandparents' house. Yeah. I'm, I'm with my people here, yeah? You felt home. So, <clears throat> yeah, I felt home. And seeing all that artwork and all those ancient sites. And, you know, I, I'm standing in front of uh, the Roman Forum where the senators would meet, you know, there's cats everywhere. And, yeah. and I just started to cry, you know? I couldn't believe it, that I had made my way there. And it was awesome. It was an awesome experience. <laughs> And, then, and how did you how did you perceive like Italian people? Because being Italian myself, you know, like I can see, you know, with other people that I meet around the world and stuff that perhaps the thing that we have is the way we 
we approach life, right? So everything is slower. Nothing works in my country. That's why. But you have a good time. You know, because like, oh, no, I love that part. Of it. Take yeah. your time, you know, just, just enjoy, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, one thing I, I noticed, okay, so there were some guys from Sicily there that were friends of Lucas, yeah? And they had the Igobo Fortuna, you know, the little guy uh, with the pepper body and the hat. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, yeah. So I'm like, what is this? And they explained to me, you know, this is going to protect whatever you put it on your coat or your jacket or you put it on your uh, suitcase. No one will steal the suitcase. The whole family will be cursed forever. Right. And uh, you rub the hunchback's back and he's got the horseshoe in one hand yeah, and the hand, you know, given the curse and you rub his back for good luck. And and it made me realize that the Italian people forgive human mistakes forgive people for being human like it's okay you're gonna well in america a hunchback is something you hide <clears throat> you know you don't celebrate it in italy touching the hunchback's back brings you luck and i thought yeah this is perfect because you forgive people and it's okay you make mistakes you're slow you do the wrong thing you're you your part of your body is deformed. It doesn't matter. Yeah? And that moved me deeply. You know, I really understood something about the Italian culture then. Yeah. And of course, food. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I must have put on 20 pounds the first time I went there. <laughs> All my friends are the same. And, uh, you know, it was, for me, it was, uh, it was a shock and it was an awakening because I'm, I'm in this ancient city, you know, filled with people that are like my family, you know, already. I only spoke a little bit of Italian. And it was funny because we went to this restaurant, right? We're all sitting around <clears throat> and I'm ordering some food in Italian. And all my friends like Luca and all these guys, they all start laughing. I'm like, what the hell is so funny? And they're like, what are you from the South? <laughs> and I'm like, well, actually, yeah. I'm like, grandfather's from Naples. They're like, oh, well, you don't say a manja, you say manjari, you know. And they started busting my chops because the words I used in Italian were like my grandfather spoke. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool because you feel like, you know, you were home. You know, you were not a, a stranger visiting. You were somebody living, you know, somewhere else, but you belonged there somehow. <clears throat> yeah, it was a good feeling. And seeing people that loved art it was important it made sense uh, you know people care about art in europe and in italy people are aware of art you know in america artists are like kids playing in their own poop you know they're not really they don't really have a job they're not really important but in europe artists are important so when you live in America, you if you live by your creative self, you're an outsider. If you live a creative life, unless you're selling records or something, you know, music or, or you're, you're a celebrity a pop star, they look at you like you're nuts. You know, I mean, I was 40 years old and people were saying, when are you going to get a job, like a real job? <laughs> yeah. 
Man, if you like reading, you know, you should definitely check out a, a great book by Irving Stone called, I think in English is uh, Ecstasy and Agony, something like that, right? Yeah. And this book is about the life of Michelangelo. Yeah. Right? But, man, it's like watching a very good series. You cannot put that book down because it tells the whole process of in Renaissance where what, what it meant to be an artist, you know? And an artist had to go through a, a proper learning process, the apprenticeship and stuff. And he wasn't... It's interesting because he wasn't like, oh, I'm an artist. You know, you were somebody that had to deliver in a certain way. And even if it would make, they would make things that were amazing, like Michelangelo, for them was more like, almost like a job. Like, no, you're supposed to do yeah. that in this time. And it's not exceptional, you know? So it's very humbling and very interesting at the same time. And it's, it's very cool. You should definitely check yeah, that I know out. Yeah, I know a lot of that. I know a lot of that history. Of, mm. You know, one of my favorite authors is Umberto Eco. Okay, yeah. You know, so beauty of- and... Uh, and on ugliness, right? Yes. There were a couple of books that were interesting like that, yeah. Yeah. Folk cults, uh, yeah. And uh, there's, you know, I'm really interested in in European history and uh, traditions. And, you know, going to Bologna every year for the tattoo convention, I did a lot of explorations. Uh, and went to Siena to see the Paolo, you know, and uh, traveled around Tuscany and, visited quite a few places. Um, you know, San Gemignano was one of the most beautiful cities I visited. And each, each time I felt a little deeper, yeah. And I went to Florence, your hometown, <coughs> the first time, of course, uh, to go to the Museum del Ponte Vecchio and then to go to the Uffizi. Uffizi, right? yeah. But I didn't really see Florence and I didn't know that. But the second time I went back, I went with Luca, and Luca had friends and we're walking down the streets and everything is, you know, high walls. And he said, oh, this is where we're going to open the door. And we stepped inside and it was this courtyard, with flowers and plants. And, you know, and it dawned on me, Florence is like a secret city. It's like a little secret jewel inside there, you know, that and tourists don't ever see that. They don't see that. They only see all oh, the big main places. Yeah. But going inside people's homes and being in, led inside this secret wall, you know, you come mm-hmm. down the street and there's just walls and then suddenly it opens up and you're in this most magnificent uh, place. That's when I realized that's the real Florence. You know, and Florence was a, a secret place. It hides its beauty, you know? Yeah, you need to, yeah, you need to know definitely yeah, how to get how to get to that. Do you know this crazy, because you, you mentioned the Pali in Siena. Do you know this crazy sport that we have in Florence that we do once a year? What is it? So it's called Calcio Storico Fiorentino, right? And basically it's been going on since 1400 or something like that. And it never stopped. Even when the French invaded Florence, people were like, fuck it, we're playing. And basically this sport is just what gladiators used to play to warm up before going into the arena, right? So imagine this, there is a square, that's where I grew up in Piazza Santa Croce, it's the Holy Cross uh, square. And basically it's a square, they close it up, they, they build around a sort of like a mini stadium with the seats and stuff. And then they fill it up with sands. Now imagine like a, like a football field, like soccer, but the two goals are the whole short side of this rectangle, right? And then you have, I don't remember how many exactly, like 20 or something like that, people per team. There are four teams. And basically something in between rugby, soccer, and MMA. So you had 20 or something dudes, right? 
that you know you have no gloves, no protection, nothing, just a mouth guard, and you can you have the ball right, and you have to put the ball inside the net to score, right? Now you can throw the ball with your hands, with your feet, whatever. But the thing is, you can stop the opponent any way you want. So what happened is that basically, when somebody's carrying the ball, the friends stop the other opponents and they grapple on the floor. And when they're on the floor, they don't fight; they just grapple. So they kind of like a submission wrestling kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, when they're standing, they fight. So you see, it's pretty fair, apart the fact that they're all crazy. So sometimes rumble, you know, it happens. But it's pretty fair. So you see little groups of like two people, one on one, just fist fighting. <laughs> yeah. It's insane, man. It's like pure, it's like watching the gladiators, you know? And, uh, and when I say this to people that never seen us, like, what the fuck is that? Like, searching on YouTube, Calcio Storico Fiorentino. They call it like Florence uh, Fight Club or something. It's super interesting, man. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's banana. It's banana. Yeah, Florence, you know, has this, uh, I guess, a worldwide... Uh, reputation as being the art city and uh, refined and of course the major city state that tried to take over everything I remember being in uh, Paji Bonse and there were all these little signs where they we beat down the you know, the Florentines and kept them out of Paji Bonse uh, it's so it's so, medieval, it's so medieval man still yeah I'd love to come and visit with you one time. Come visit. Maybe man, we can definitely would be an honor. And, uh, you know, if you ever think about coming, you know, let me know. And then I'll make time to, you know, to make sure I'm there and, uh, you know, show you around, show you the other little things we haven't seen. You have the area around Siena, which is called Sienese. And, and it's just like what you see on, on postcards and stuff, you know, where they make wine and you have little family restaurants. It's, it's you know, just, uh, oh. just let me know when. Yeah, it makes my heart start to beat fast. <laughs> yeah, and let me ask you, I'm not going to take much longer of your time. I'm just going to ask you a couple of more questions. Yeah, we got off um, the subject of tattooing there. But... Yeah, but that's, that's the point, you know, that's the point. Um, you know, when you, when you look back, right, all these years with, with these incredible, you know, uh, stories and people you met, what would you say is the, the advice that you found or some of the advice that you found the most valuable that somebody gave you or, or a lesson, something you've learned that you kept going back to? Well, there was a kind of a sense of ethics early on in tattooing that stayed with me. Um, people, of course, there were divisions early on, too, because some tattoo artists, they would just do anything. You're going to pay me. I'm going to do it. Yeah. But there were some artists who started to talk about this connection between tattooing and healing, tattooing and spirituality. Um, and those were the, that was the direction I went to uh, and believed it. And those words are the ones that stayed with me, that I had a responsibility for what I put on somebody. So if someone comes to me and says, you know, I want shit written on my head, I'm not going to do it. Sorry, I'm not your guy. Yeah. Uh, I have a responsibility for how that's going to change your life, how that's going to affect your life. And I began to see tattooing from a completely different place. And there were quite a few people of my generation who felt the same way. And also there was a huge influx of women coming into tattooing. So it was the first time really that women really started taking center stage. Yeah. And uh, 
So by the 80s, there were quite a few very famous tattoo artists that were female. And they brought a different kind of energy to the place, yeah, to the scene. And uh, so I think the lesson I learned was I'm not going to do anything that I know in my heart is not good. It's a bad idea. I just got a letter from a guy the other day. He wrote to me out of, you know, just in the clear blue. He said, I want to thank you. He said, 20 years ago, when I was a teenager, he said, my girlfriend died. She was in a car accident. And I came in and I wanted to do a portrait of her on my arm. He said, you spent the next three hours telling me that I shouldn't do that because I wouldn't want to remember this, the horror of this experience for the rest of my life. And that as my life moved forward, there will be other people in my life. And I would have to always have this picture of this girl who he's with maybe a couple of years. And I talked him out of doing it. I had a shot to do a portrait there, right? Could have made some money, done a really nice tattoo, but I talked him out of it. And, and I just got this letter just a few weeks ago. He said, I just want to say thank you. You saved me from having that tattoo. He said, it was a terrible accident. It was a terrible time in my life. He said, but now that I'm an adult and I'm in a relationship, I have a family. He said, I know that that would have been the wrong thing to do. And he just wrote to me and said, thank you. And that justifies my reason for being a tattoo artist. This idea that people come to me when they're going through something, you know, there is a great book written by a Dutch anthropologist. His name is Van Gennep. And it's about rite of passage rituals all over the world. And what do they have in common? They have pain, bloodletting, a mark of some kind to show that you've been through this experience and you kill off the old and you open the new. And that's what I do with my machines. That's what I do with my work. I turn people out into their next level, into their next place. You know, long ago, I used to have on one of my business cards that I was the angel of death. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if you want to kill off the old self, I'm your guy, you know? And to this day, I still live by those words and I still live by those rules and I turn work away all the time. And today, in today's world, especially um, in contemporary tattooing, Kids all have their faces tattooed and their hands tattooed and their fingers tattooed. I mean, in America, no one talks about it. <clears throat> but if a kid comes into a young guy comes into a place looking for work and he's got tattoos on his face, he's not going to get that job. He's not going to have that future. He's not going to have that possibility. You know, so, OK, you want to be punk and you want to show you're, you know, you're, you're a traditional guy or whatever in tattooing and you get your face all tattooed. Well, you know, in our culture, hands, faces, that is our identity to the world. That's how people see us. That's how they relate to us. And I'm still not going to do that. I won't do face tattoos. I don't tattoo hands. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to tattoo racist slogans on people, you know. Somebody comes in and wants some, you know, uh, racist comment or tattoo. And I'm like, piss off. 
go someplace else, you know? Yeah, man. It reminds me, like, I think like maybe 10, 15, maybe like 15 years ago, I was working at Furimer in, in Berlin. And I remember the owner, one of the two owners, he said to me, because a girl came asking for something, you know, like, there's the shoot really be done, right? And he said, I still remember all the time. And he's like, Steph, you know, sometimes you have to, as tattooers, we have the responsibility to protect people from themselves, you know? And that tells you that, that this is more than just pretty pictures, right? Absolutely. I mean, when you take somebody who's 19 years old or 18 years old and they want to get some fuck the world written on them or something like that, I'm like, dude, you don't have any idea what's coming for you. The future, your life is going to move forward. And that tattoo is going to keep you stuck right there in that place. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, people look at me like I have two heads. They're like, yeah, but I got this money. Yeah. Look, I got this money. <laughs> like, good. Take the money and go someplace where people don't give a shit about what they do. I have a standard that I live by. This is how I live my life. I'm an artist. I want to create things. I want to create beauty in the world. I want to move people in some way. I'm a poet also. You know that, right? I mean, yep. a published poet, and I do poetry performances. Poetry is the history of the human heart what it means to be a human. And this is why, this is my Italian, right? Coming forward, yeah? I wanna express, help people express what it, they're going through, what their experience is. I wanna do that. That's what I wanna do with my tattooing. I wanna help them get past the death that they're facing in their life, the people they've lost, I want to help them get through and experience and show the world they're different now because they've graduated from college or they have a kid or they just got married. Those are wonderful things to celebrate. And, <clears throat> you know, there, 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 there are many different ideas about ritual that are lost in modern culture. But I think that tattooing is a ritual that bonds people together. And although the Christian and the Catholic church has tried to squash it everywhere, it still thrives and it's still going today. It still lives. <clears throat> but today maybe kids are tattooing because they want to see how many likes they could get on Instagram. But I'm not going to do that kind of tattoo. Yeah, I'm not in it to see how many likes you can get on Instagram. I want to know something about who you, who you are, what are you doing, why are you doing this? And no, I'm not going to copy this other guy's tattoo that you saw on Instagram. That's another thing. I'm not going to knock off other people's tattoos. I tell them, look, what does it say on my card? It says, I'm a tattoo artist. Emphasis on the artist. You want me to create something for you? Something that's yours? something that's unique, something that's personal, then I am your guy, yeah? And, and I'm going to live by that until I can't pick up a tattoo machine anymore. Yeah, yeah man, I, I agree a million percent. And, and, you know, thank you for, for saying this because I'm sure that sometimes people that, not because of any other thing, but they don't know any better, you know? So definitely, you know, hopefully this will reach some of them and, and put them, you know, under a different light. You know, and um, let me ask you if you could somehow, you know, magically go back and, and with, you know, the life you had, the thing you know now and talk to yourself when you were like, I don't know, before everything started, like 16 or something. 
what would you tell yourself? Um, find your own way, you know, don't listen to what other people have to say, find your own way. Yeah. Be true to yourself. I mean, that's ancient wisdom, but, uh, when you're younger, you're, you've got all these people telling you, you should be doing this. You should, oh, you have to take care of this. You have to do that. You know, and I grew up as a poor kid. So, uh, it was like, you know, my father said, ah, oh, you're to be an artist. That's bullshit. You got to get a job. You got to make money, you know? You got to have a pension. You got to have this and you got to have that. And one day I woke up and I went, wait a minute, this is not who I am. I'm an artist and I'm going to be an artist. And it took me a good 20 years to wake up and say, oh, no, I'm going my direction. You know, I'm going to make it or I'm going to fail, but I'm going that way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so if I had gotten to myself when I was younger, I would have. Uh, given myself a little more confidence about becoming an artist, you know, despite all the pressure against that. You know, my father said, uh, everybody knows that all artists are fags. <laughs> I was like, wow, thanks, dad. Uh, that's great news. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know, but he was, he became a cop. So that'll give you some uh, idea of where he was going. Perspective, yeah. Yeah, some perspective on my father. But uh, yeah, if you can live your life and make a living, you know, you don't have to be stealing from other people or cheating other people. And you can live your life as an honest man and do what you know is the right thing. Create something and able to live, pay for yourself, take care of things, take care of your family. Yeah. Then you're on the right path in life. Amazing. You know what, like, I feel that that here we just scratched the surface because, you know, you seem like a man that lived many lives. <laughs> you yeah. know? So like, and now we're here is nothing, you know, to, to we just scratched the surface. But uh, thank you so much for, you know, all this, apart from the entertainment, you know, you have a very strong message, you know, so I really, I'm, I'm really sure that we resonate with a lot of people. So thank you. Yeah, for, they won't uh, be yeah. saying that guy's crazy. What's he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Especially after the first story. Um, Shotzi, where people can find you, where people can find your stuff, how, the, how can they connect? Okay, well, on the internet, uh, I'm available on hashtag Shotzi Gorman, S-H-O-T-S-I-E-G-O-R-M-A-N. And uh, I have a website, Tarot Art and Tattoo Gallery. My wife and I have a gallery and a tattoo studio together, and she's a professional tarot card reader. She's an oil painter, and she's creating an original tarot deck and writing a book on uh, evolution of intuition related to the tarot. Amazing. And, uh, you know, so they can find me. If they just type in Shotzi Gorman, they'll get dozens of pages of stuff. If you look up, I'm on Wikipedia. If you look up Wikipedia, you'll find me there. <laughs> so I'm all over the place. Um, you can, you'll find sections on my poetry, on my artwork, my uh, sculpture, and my tattooing spread all over the place. And uh, I'm taking appointments. I will be doing some once this we get past this COVID thing. If we ever get past it, I will definitely be doing visits to Europe and I might be doing this Luxembourg show. I just got invited to the show in Luxembourg in 2022. And I'm really seriously thinking about doing that. I've never been to Luxembourg. 
lovely little place squished between Germany and uh, and France. Yeah. Yeah, so, and everything is so is so close here. Like in two hours, you can go anywhere. You know. And my yeah. wife asked me the other day. She said, "If money was no object, where would we live?" And the first thing out of my mouth was Italy. I would live in Italy, even though I I, I speak like I'm from the south. <laughs> I would, <laughs> yeah, would want to be I would want to be in Tuscany, uh, probably. I said because people there understand art. And they live from their, not everyone, of course, yeah. they live from their hearts. And that's important for me. Yeah. My friend Luca bought me a poster after my first few times in Italy when I kept saying, I think I'm going to move here. <laughs> it was a poster and the top of it had all these beautiful, big breasted women, you know, and food. And, all, and it said, Italy, the dream. And then underneath there was the tax man knocking at the door, <laughs> taking taxes and uh, making you pay for the car and the automobile, you know, the repairman, uh, taking all your money. And <laughs> it was really funny. The truth of Italy and the dream of Italy. Keeping it real, like in, in one in one post. Yeah, yeah. Shotzi, thank you all so right, much friend. again. Pleasure. And, uh, and we'll talk soon, yeah? Okay, ciao. Awesome.